You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Yeah, welcome to service this morning. I'm so glad again that you guys are all here. Um, uh, of course, I think everybody here uh, so far is familiar, but I'll still give the reminder that, um, of course, we'll be taking communion a little bit later in the service. <clears throat> so if you need to grab elements, um, please do that. <clears throat> Excuse me, whatever is uh, communion for you in your house this morning. Uh, and we'll be taking that together, Max will lead us a little bit later in the service. I also wanted to um, uh, acknowledge, as I was uh, looking at things this week, um, it is, of course, in March Women's History Month. And so today, instead of uh, sharing a bunch of stuff of my own, I wanted to um, share a couple of things um, from women and make sure to take space, especially this month, to lift up voices of um, women. And, you know, that's something that has been important for us here at Central in many ways, to lift up voices that are different from um, particularly white male, uh, straight white male voices. And um, yeah, so uh, what I want to do is open us with a prayer this morning and then um, lead us in um, just some uh, words of encouragement as a time of liturgy. Um, but what I'm gonna be sharing first is written by uh, Gwen Cashmore and Joan Pulse. And um, they are uh, from the United Kingdom and part of the Britain and Ireland Church's Commission for Racial Justice. Um, and I think what they have put together here is a beautiful representation of who we are at Central and the way we talk about God as well. Um, so as we open our service this morning, would you join me in prayer? God of surprises, you call us from the narrowness of our traditions to new ways of being church, from the captives of our culture to creative witness for justice from the smallness of our horizons to the bigness of wider vision. Clear the way in us, your people, that we might call others to freedom and renewed faith. Jesus, wounded healer, you call us from preoccupation with our own histories and hurt to daily tasks of peacemaking, from privilege and protocol to partnership and pilgrimage from isolation and insularity to inclusive community. Clear the way in us, your people, that we might call others to wholeness and integrity. Holy transforming spirit, you call us from fear to faithfulness, from clutter to clarity, from a desire to control to deeper trust, from the refusal to love to a readiness to risk. Clear the way in us, your people, that we might all know the beauty and power and danger of the gospel. Amen. I wanted to share this morning with 
you a um, passage here um, written by Sarah Bessie from her book. I mentioned this and we used a piece of it uh, a few weeks ago um, called A Rhythm for Prayer. It's a collection that she edited. Um, and uh, what I didn't realize until I was back in this again this week is that it is all written by women. So all of the voices that she compiled together are um, um, people and leaders and voices in the church and particularly female voices. Uh, I also like that it was not ever branded that way. It wasn't shown as like a, this is a really awesome thing that's all just women. It's kind of just taken that that is something that we shouldn't be surprised by. And so weeks later, as I'm back in this book, I noticed that and um, I wish things were more like that, that we didn't have to stand out and isolate and lift up and show those particular um, things like collections that are all women's voices, um, that that wouldn't be unusual. Um, and I think with the things that um, places like our community are trying to do and support, we're getting closer to that direction. But of course, this is always something that we're gonna to continue to work with. Um, but this I wanna share with you by Sarah is, um, she just calls a reminder. Um, and it's in a transition between uh, kind of different places of faith from an initial orientation walking into disorientation. And that's where she's situated this here in the book. You don't have to be productive and you don't have to change the world. You're already so loved. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be simple. You don't have to read all the right books by the right people. You're already so loved. You don't have to be beautiful and thin with an articulate and ironic fashion sense, not at all. But if you're into that kind of thing, well, that's okay too. You don't have to be healthy in your mind or in your body you don't have to be in full-time vocational ministry. You can watch horrible television or you can be proud of your television-less home. You can be artistic or scientific. You can spend your life traveling to meet people or you can live and die in the town where you were born. You don't have to conform to somebody else's idea of holy or acceptable. You can be from the wrong side of the tracks or the gated community, suburbs or urban or rural. You can work with your hands and your mind, your back and your brain. You don't have to be educated, not at all. You don't have to have a degree or letters after your name. You don't have to know the right people and boast a carefully curated Instagram feed with the famous and the beautiful and the influential. You don't have to be conservative. You don't have to be liberal. You don't have to identify with certain political persuasions or ideologies on sexuality or science, or socioeconomics, or foreign policy. You can be a social justice warrior, or you know, not. None of that moves the meter of your belovedness. God won't say, okay, now I love her just a bit more because look, she's finally out of debt, or thin, or powerful, or influential, or tireless. Your family story can be beautiful, or terrible, or like most of us, a bit of both. Perhaps you're famous or well-known or influential. That's okay. Perhaps you're quiet and unknown. Maybe you hate that. Maybe you love it. You don't have to be a mother or a father. You don't have to be married. You don't have to be single. 
You don't have to want children or raise children. You don't have to be sober or clean. You don't have to give away everything you own and take a vow of poverty. You don't have to be prosperous either. Church or no church, or a certain kind of church only, whatever. You can doubt or feel great certainty, even if that certainty is in your doubt. You can believe in God, doubt God, seek God. You can be someone well acquainted with unanswered prayers. You can carry chronic pain or dance through life. You can be introverted or extroverted. You don't have to love yourself or even like yourself. You are loved. Whether your life looks well put together from the outside while hiding a hot mess inside or vice versa, sometimes on the same day, you are loved. Morning like, morning lark, night owl, sinner, saint, child of God, siblings of us all, we are loved. You have nothing to prove, you have nothing to earn. Sure, any one of those things might change because you are loved. You may know already where God wants to breathe change and wholeness into you, bringing your life more in line with the person that you were meant to be all along. Love can and does and will transform us in every way, our ideologies, our opinions, our habits, our values, our priorities, our very names. But it's not a prerequisite or a requirement. It's not behavior modification. It never is, not for love. Love has happened and it is happening and it will happen. It is kind and patient towards you. You are already so loved. You aren't earning a breath of love or tenderness more than what you already have just by breathing, just by existing, just by being here in the wonder. Your name is already written in the lines and the hands of the universe. Your star breast of dust, your beloved, intimately, faithfully, holy. It's your lifelong rock. You are known. You are loved with delight and abundance, with choice and desire, with covenantal love. You may feel it or not. You are so loved. You are so loved. You are so loved. Bob, that is uh, one of the, your greatest selections. Oh, thanks, Doug. Yeah. Thanks, Bob. Um, as Bob mentioned earlier, we'll take communion like we do each week. So if you need to grab something, go for it. Um, whatever you have available will work. Um, so to continue a bit on the theme, I didn't even know Bob was going to do that theme, but it works out quite well. I'm just going to read a prayer of Teresa of Avila, um, and um, then we'll take communion together. Um, today I have a little bit of a cookie <laughs> that Theo keeps nibbling off of, and my coffee. Feel free to put what you have in the chat if you'd like. Will you pray with me? In the words of Teresa of Avila, may today there be peace within. May you trust God that you are exactly where you are meant to be. May you not forget the infinite possibilities that are born of faith May you use those gifts that you have received and pass on the love that has been given to you. May you be content knowing you are a child of God. 
Let this presence settle into your bones and allow your soul and freedom to sing, dance, praise, and love. It is there for each and every one of us. Amen. And on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread in the upper room and he broke it and gave it to those gathered and said, each time you do this, do it in remembrance of me, my body broken for you. So I invite you to take whatever it is as you have the, the, for the bread today. And after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant. Drink in remembrance of me. I invite you to take the cup now. May our hands and feet be blessed into the service of the kingdom of God. Amen. I think Babo's doing announcements today. I am. Um, so we uh, don't have a, a ton of announcements this morning, um, but of course we are in the middle of Atheism for Lent, which is happening on Wednesdays currently in place of the gathering. Um, and uh, Aaron has been leading that uh, half of the time and uh, Ryan, the pastor of um, uh, Christian, uh, Mission Hills Christian Church, there we go, um, is uh, leading the other half. And so that has been actually a really enjoyable experience to do that with people outside of just Central. It's neat to see different kind of voices and perspectives in this journey of deconstruction and reconstruction that we're doing. So join us at seven o'clock on Wednesdays. Uh, Aaron shares the information on Facebook. Um, and if you need that more specifically, uh, you can reach out to uh, Aaron or myself and we can get that to you. Um, and we will be having a Good Friday service. Uh, more details about that to come, about exactly when in the day that will happen. But just like our Ash Wednesday service, um, that will be a bit of a shorter service and the time for us to come together um, in remembrance of the crucifixion before leading up to Easter on Sunday. Um, then, of course, the last thing I wanted to make sure that we're always um, saying and uh, and continually putting forward is that um, uh, please let us know if there's anything at all that you need. These have been um, very difficult times over the last year in so many ways, um, emotionally, um, physically, financially, um, whatever your needs are, please let us know. You can reach out to anybody who is on staff or any one of the elders. Um, we'd be happy to help or find a way to help. And it's important to know that uh, people in our community have already been very generous in giving towards a COVID-19 relief fund. Um, so we have financial resources available, particularly for hardships. And um, thanks for being part of a community that cares and loves each other so greatly. That is everything I have for us. Thanks, Bob. Uh, does anybody have any prayer requests or perhaps words of thanksgiving, uh, anything they want to share with the community? Uh, you can unmute and uh, raise your voice that way, or you can put it in the chat if you're more comfortable doing that. Does anybody have anything they want to share this morning? Um, yeah, I can uh, just want to thank everybody for uh, prayers for my family. Um, 
for those of you that don't know, my, my niece was uh, died in a drowning accident in January. Uh, so um, I'm back with family. Everybody's doing uh, everybody's doing good. Um, there was uh, obviously a really huge outpouring of uh, support from my sister and uh, her husband and and um, uh, my other niece, um, who is uh, Krista's older sister. So um, yeah, everybody's doing doing really well. It was actually um, uh, remarkable to to see how. Uh, obviously, they, they grieved, and and it was a uh, uh, very, very difficult um, <laughs> sort of uh, period of time there. But um, uh, there's just an amazing kind of outpouring of love and support from uh, all of the friends and the people in the community there in my hometown. Um, they're, they're involved in um, a lot of, like, global uh, missions work. They they actually run a uh, nonprofit that kind of does um, sort of children's ministry materials, but really their primary thing is raising money to build uh, wells in um, uh, for for rural schools in Kenya. Um, so there's just been a, a, just a massive outpouring of um, support for that work, uh, which has been a, a huge source of encouragement uh, for for my sister. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to kind of give everyone an update on, uh, on that situation with the family and just thank you all for, for the, the prayers and support. Thanks for the update. And it's, it's good to hear, um, that she's, she's doing okay. And the family's doing okay. Despite unbelievably tragic circumstances. Um, Doug, you unmuted. Did you have something you wanted to share? Uh, no. Oh, okay. No worries. No, I Wanted to hear better. Okay. Oh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, Emily, go ahead. Um, a lot of you guys know I had to start chemotherapy a few weeks ago for my arthritis and my back. Um, and it makes me pretty sick. And then I just found out um, the other day that I have to double the dose now because uh, my levels are still too high for the inflammatory markers. So, um, so I start that tomorrow. So yikes, I'm not looking forward to that. Yeah. Well, let's, let's pray as a community. Loving God, we lift up Emily and this uh, increase in medication. We pray for her continued health and well-being and that the medicine and the care of her physicians might bring her a great relief in Jesus name. Amen. Anybody else this morning? All right. <clears throat> With that, Max, I'm going to hand it over to you. Thanks. So um, if you have been around uh, for the last couple of weeks here at, um, as we walk through Lent, um, you'll know that we've been doing sort of a meditation each week on a particular word. We're guided um, by just an amazing group of uh, inclusive liturgists, I'll call them. Um, over at, at something called Enfleshed. So um, um, go check them out if you like some of the stuff we bring uh, to these to these. Um, but what I'm going to do today is I'll uh, read our word and the little prompts. I'll put it in the chat, and then I'm actually just going to share a music video 
I was actually wanting to share this music video before I even found out what today's word is. And today's word is beauty. And that is literally the word that I used <laughs> to describe um, this video that I came across uh, recently. Um, so hopefully it'll be helpful for our reflection. Um, uh, sorry, I have stuff crashing. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> Um, okay, so today's word is beauty. And so as a reminder, um, if you want, if you feel it to be a uh, useful practice, the idea is that if you have something to write with, or you can just think about it or meditate on it, um, I'll give you some prompts about beauty. And it's just meant to allow us to focus on that word and what it means and the different connotations. And if you are a writer, or if you uh, aren't a writer, it doesn't really matter. If you find the practice of writing um, helpful and powerful, um, the idea is to help yourself create on a topic. So um, I'll, again, I'll read it for us, then I'll put it in the chat and then I'll start the video. Beauty. On pathways to collective flourishing, what is the role of beauty? What impact does beauty have on your understanding of justice? How can beauty function as a means of resistance? How does beauty get used and distorted? What are ways relating to beauty other than consumption? What does beauty awaken within you? So I'll put that there. You can pull up the chat. Um, you might have to click on it manually after I start screen sharing, but you should be able to read it if you need to come back to it. And with that, I will play our song. I invite you to meditate, um, write something down.
There you go. Eric Whitaker, one of my favorite composers of all time, has a piece by him and performed by the Canai Mason family. So that's a family. Um, and it's just so cool and, a, and a, just a beautiful piece. So hopefully that um, was helpful as you conceptualize what beauty is and how it fits into our paths towards justice and what we do as a community. Amen. Thanks, Max. Yes, that was quite beautiful. So today is part three in our Lent series on the sufferings of Christ and what it means to share in his sufferings. As I've said the last few weeks, this is perhaps the earliest understanding of what it meant to be a Christian. A Christian or a disciple of Christ was someone who shared in his sufferings. But what does that mean? This is what we are exploring in this Lenten series, as Lent is traditionally a time when the church meditates on the sufferings of Christ by fasting, fasting from something. So, so think of this series as our collective Lenten fast. Today, we're looking at Jesus's persecution by the religious authorities, namely the Pharisees and the scribes, but the chief priests didn't like him much either. I'm not gonna focus on one particular story <clears throat> because there are so many good ones to choose from. So instead, I'm going to give a quick overview of the different ways Jesus was persecuted and attacked by the religious leaders throughout his ministry. Obviously, it all culminated with the crucifixion, but there was a lot that happened before then. He was really constantly being criticized and attacked uh, and tested by the religious leaders for what he said and did. For example, they accused him of blasphemy for forgiving sins. They accused him of being demon-possessed. They accused him of being a friend of tax collector, sorry, tax collectors and sinners because he ate and drank with them. They accused him of being impious and breaking the religious the religious law because he healed on the Sabbath and because he and his disciples once picked grain on the Sabbath and because they didn't fast and because they ate with dirty hands. <laughs> the common thread in all of these accusations <clears throat> was that Jesus was sinful, irreligious, irreverent, blasphemous, and godless. But what I want us to see here more than anything else was that he incited this persecution himself. His persecution by the religious authorities wasn't accidental. It wasn't something that was beyond his control and just something he was unwillingly subjected to, like being born into poverty or something. Rather, he incited the devout against him by what he said and did. He incited the devout against him by his message and how he lived. I like how the Lutheran theologian Jürgen Moltmann put it. He said this, by proclaiming a message of liberation from religious law, he incited the guardians of the law. Let me say that again. By proclaiming a message of liberation from religious law, he incited the guardians of the law. I love that. Am I saying that Jesus deliberately wanted to incite them? Yes, I, I think so. I think this romantic idea today of the so-called civil Jesus, who didn't want to upset anybody, who didn't want anyone to feel uncomfortable or offended or, or like he didn't like them, <clears throat> I, I think that's a... A romantic notion usually maintained by those who don't want to suffer the social consequences that come from taking a stand on divisive issues. The so-called civil Christ 
is a fantasy usually conjured up by the comfortable and the privileged who stand to lose something by challenging the status quo, be it political or religious or both. But to share in the sufferings of Christ, to share in the sufferings of Christ is to do just that. It's to say and do things that incite the devout against you, to say and do things that incite the powerful against you. To put it another, to put it another way, to share in Christ's sufferings is to share in the scorn and the sufferings of those he identified with, those on the margins, those labeled dirty and godless and other than. To share in their sufferings and persecution is to share in Christ's sufferings and persecution. There is no difference because it was his identification with them that incited the religious and the powerful against him in the first place. By claiming that God was on the side of the godless, he incited the devout against him and was cast out into the godlessness of Golgotha. Therefore, to be his disciple, to be a Christian, is to be persecuted for being on the side of the so-called godless. It's to stand with those whom Christ stood with. It's to be rejected as he was for speaking truth to power. It's to be rejected as he was for proclaiming liberation from oppression. Another way of putting this is to say that being a Christian means inciting the right people against you. It means pissing off the right people, particularly the pious, the, the so-called devout, which is an interesting way of looking at it. You know, it never ceases to amaze me that evangelicals, and I used to be one of them, and so, uh, so were many of you, it never ceases to amaze me that evangelicals miss this glaring fact of the Gospels or Jesus's story, that it was the religious, it was the pious and the devout, those who were, who were obsessed with orthodoxy and rigid adherence to the scriptures, that it was them that opposed Christ. It was them that Jesus denounced most, saying things like, woe to you Pharisees, because you tithe a tenth of your mint and dill and, you, and yet you neglect justice and the love of God. I'm amazed that anybody can read the Gospels and miss this dominant theme. But again, I used to be one of them, which is proof, you know, we all hear what we want to hear and disregard the rest. But it's also true to say, you know, I once was blind, but now I see. And what I see now is that being a Christian, being a Christ follower, at least originally, had nothing to do with matters of religious belief or adherence to religious customs. In fact, Christianity was more defined as the critique of those things than adherence to them. But more specifically, it was defined as sharing in Christ's sufferings. When Jesus told his disciples in Luke 14, whoever doesn't pick up their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple, this is what he was talking about. The cross was, of course, the culmination of all his persecutions at the hands of the religious leaders and the authorities. The cross was the inevitable conclusion of inciting them with his teachings and his subversive activities, like flipping over the merchant tables in the temple and eating and drinking with sinners and breaking the Sabbath by healing on it and, and being more popular with the, with, with the people than, than the religious leaders were, which is another reason why they hated him. They were jealous of him. And his popularity, we're told. Jesus knew. He knew that these were the reasons why they wanted him dead. And this is an important point. Because Jesus did not think he was being crucified for the sins of the world. Jesus did not go to the cross 
because he thought God needed the blood of an innocent man to appease his wrath. Uh, Jesus didn't go to the cross because he, he thought he was being crucified to save us from hell and to get us into heaven. Nor did he think his crucifixion was some kind of a ransom payment to Satan on our behalf. Those atonement theories, as they're called, are ideas the church came up with decades after, sometimes centuries after Christ. There is nothing in the Gospels that suggests that's why Jesus thought he was going to the cross. Instead, it's quite clear that he believed he was going to the cross because he incited the authorities. He incited the authorities by teaching what they regarded as blasphemy and heresy. These ideas that God was on the side of the godless, the poor, the Samaritans, and all those labeled other than and, and ritually unclean. Therefore, to pick up your cross and follow him is to, you know, to, to be his disciple, as he defines it in Luke 14, to pick up your cross and follow him, is to incite the pious and the powerful against you too, for the same reasons he did. This is the cost of discipleship Jesus was talking about in Luke 14. This is what it meant to pick up your cross and follow him. This is what it means to share in his sufferings. <clears throat> now, I don't know about you, but that is a, a radically different definition of discipleship than the one I was raised with. I was told that the cost of discipleship and what it meant to carry your cross was to struggle to remain pious and pure in this fallen world, which meant, you know, to struggle against doubt and unbelief in an increasingly secular age and to maintain our sexual purity in an increasingly sexual and sensuous age, you know, but, but none of that is what Jesus was talking about when he talked about picking up your cross and following him. It wasn't about the struggle to remain pious and pure, but the struggle to proclaim a message of liberation and justice in a world run by those who absolutely do not want liberation and justice and who, who will do almost anything to stop those who do. This is what it meant to share in his sufferings and to pick up your cross and follow him. And this is, I think, actually what faith is. The Greek word for faith in the, in the New Testament is pistis. And it's been translated into English as faith, but faith in English-speaking cultures like our own is unfortunately synonymous with belief, meaning feelings of certainty, intellectually subscribing to, to difficult things to believe in, like the miraculous and the supernatural. But there's many reasons to think that's not what the New Testament writers had in mind when they talked about faith in Christ. Rather, the English word faithfulness I think it's a better, def, uh, better translation of pistis. And it, and it changes the meaning significantly. What does it mean to be faithful to Christ? What does it mean to be a faithful follower of Jesus? This, I think, is a better definition of faith than the one we've been given, which again, basically reduces faith down to just mere belief. So just to connect the dots here, I am saying that Faith in Christ is being faith is faithfulness to Christ. Faith in Christ is faithfulness to Christ. And faithfulness to Christ is sharing in his sufferings. And sharing in his sufferings means sharing in his persecutions. Or perhaps better put, it means to be rejected and condemned as he was for proclaiming a message of liberation and justice. I don't really like the word persecution <laughs> because it's so misused, especially by evangelicals today who have, shall we say, a persecution complex. The, the word persecution has come 
uh, to sound very pious and sanctimonious to me, so I don't like it. And we're not really going to be persecuted like Jesus was anyway, right? You know, none of us are probably going to be crucified for being progressive Christians and standing up for black lives or queer lives. But we are going to be rejected and condemned by the so-called devout and the guardians of orthodoxy. Many of us already have been, right? They, they tell us that we're not real Christians and we're actually destroying the church. We're destroying America and we're, we're uh, leading, we're, we're taking countless lives to hell with us by proclaiming, you know, this social justice gospel or something, right? But inciting such rancor from the devout is part of what it means to share in Christ's sufferings. So is the heartache, so many of us know, that, that comes from being estranged from friends and family for, um, for, for saying these things, for taking a stand on these issues, right? Um, this too is what it means to share in Christ's sufferings. So is the self-doubt that comes from walking this path that many of us know. This is what it means to follow Christ. This is what it means to have faith and be faithful to the crucified Christ. And, and that, that's a definition of faith I think we all can get on board with. People often ask me in this community, you know, in the aftermath of deconstruction, what is there left to reconstruct around? The answer is, is this, actually. We reconstruct around the sufferings of Christ. We reconstruct around love and liberation and justice. In this way, deconstruction can actually be an expression of deep faith rather than something you do when you lose your faith. Letting go of religion, letting go of certainty, letting go of our idols and clinging instead to liberation, love, and justice is actually true faith in Christ. That means that whatever we may believe about the supernatural, the afterlife, the existence or the non-existence of a supreme being, and it's wonderful to have those beliefs, but whatever we believe about all that is ancillary to having faith in Christ. This to me is the true scandal of Christianity. It's a religion about a God who is rejected by the religious for not being very religious. It's a religion about a God whose true religion was love, liberation, and justice. It's a religion about a God who is persecuted and oppressed for siding with the persecuted and oppressed. To have faith in that God is to share in his sufferings. And I think that's a definition of faith we all can find meaningful regardless of our various beliefs. So that's my talk today. And uh, I hope that's helpful for all of you. And I'm, I'm curious now, as always, to uh, hear what, what your thoughts on this might be. Anybody have any any comments about that today or any questions? I'll jump in. <laughs> yeah. You noted this, um, but yeah, my first place my brain went is to thinking about, okay, I don't disagree, <laughs> but a lot of this is exactly the same rhetoric that we're hearing from those who we have polar um, disagreements with. Um, and so in my head, I was like, so how do we bridge that gap, right? So it's like, how do we 
um, it's essentially just a disagreement between what persecution looks like. Yeah. So fundamentally the same mechanism, right? Of saying like, hey, the point of Christianity is to be a martyr and to be persecuted. And we have some people that we're, um, many of us are familiar with and come from, you know, families and communities like that, who will see like deconstruction as the persecution, right? And um liberal culture and secular secularism and you know fill in the blanks and it's like that's to be faithful to christ is to suffer alongside christ and christ is suffering because the liberal culture is trying to you know cancel him (laughs) sorry we could go a lot of places but i guess just just naming that like yeah how do we how do we how do we wrestle with that and embrace that idea of persecution? And I know you are, you named that you don't like the word and whatever word we want to use, but the, the same concept of, Hey, like to suffer is confirmation of our, our correctness. Right. And so then suddenly we're poised for every time there's critique or pushback to be like, this just confirms that I'm on the right path. Um, and, and it, it just can obviously tr- go in multiple directions. So I guess just naming that, that seems like the toughest part, um, yeah. to hold and to balance and to actually figure out, okay, where do we go when both sides are saying, Hey, you're persecuting me. Uh, hey, you're pushing me out. So that confirms that I'm right. Yeah. But you're pushing back on me and that confirms that I'm right. Um, and it just feels like spin cycle. Yeah. 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 Well, you raise, I mean, that's, that's an important point. And that's where exactly where um, my mind would have gone 20 years ago. I'm like, no, we're the persecuted ones. You know, we're even, even though, you know, the evangelical right is a very powerful voting block and, you know, whatever, um, because atheism and secular culture is constantly attacking our, our, our religious liberties and our, and our, and our religious morality um, you know, and, and fighting the patriarchy and, and wanting to insert queerness into the school curriculums. You were the persecuted one. Yeah, of course, you know, um, but are they correct about that? No. <laughs> and, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, you're right, Max. They're always going to say we're the persecuted ones, especially right now because of the Equality Act, right? Uh, I know lots of pastors um, out East that are deeply concerned that the Equality Act is a form of religious persecution against conservative believers, and it's going to force Christian pastors to perform gay weddings, or it's going to force them not to be able to, you know, quote-unquote, you know, discriminate against gay folk by preaching against, you know, homosexuality, as they would say. I don't like that word, but you know what I mean? Um, or they'll say that uh, if I have somebody on my staff that comes out as gay and I let them go, you know, I could be sued. And they, they see that as persecution, right? That their religious liberties mean their right to essentially discriminate. Well, is that accurate? Are they actually being persecuted by being told, a, you don't always get your way, and B, you can't continue to harm these people. Is that really persecution? No, okay. but they, yeah, and, and I and I know you you agree with that. Okay. But I think that's I think that's the crux of the matter. You know, a lot of these issues do come down to. I know that they have a fantasy that they have a certain definition of persecution that is at odds with ours. But at the end of the day, they're wrong, and you know, I and you're right to point out that that's what they're always going to say. But it's like. 
I, I, I think when you actually do understand that those who oppose, as I said in my talk, the people, the people who oppose Jesus and the gospel weren't the atheists and the secular progressives. It yeah. was the it was the devout. It was yeah. the devout. And yeah. and they opposed him because he stood in solidarity with the godless and the poor and, and those deemed other than and ritually unclean. And they opposed him for blasphemy and heresy. And it's just it's just shocking to me that I grew up in a tradition where where that was never really acknowledged. That, yeah. You know what I mean? And but it's so you don't have to like. You don't even have to be a progressive to acknowledge that that's who opposed Jesus. You know what I mean? And it's like he was crucified because he incited the devout against him, period. He was crucified because he incited the devout against him. And and it's just amazing to me that Christian persecution has become something totally other than and that sharing in the sufferings of Christ has become defined as fighting atheism and fighting secularism and you know fighting to maintain religion and and our religious our religious rights to basically you know call out homosexuality or something and it's just unbelievable to me. But now I'm ranting and preaching again. Uh, <laughs> no, that's good. I was just gonna say, and as you talked, it also helped clarify for me too. I guess part of my concern is as the power shifts, like politically, yeah. and culturally. The, that argument kind of ping pongs, right? Because yeah. it's because you, I think you're dead on, right? So, like, stuff like the Equality Act and stuff like that is suddenly allows the Christian fundamentalism to say, Hey, we're being persecuted because now the cultural, you know, milieu, the political power is passing these things that say, the the discrimination that we practice is now illegal. And so, it's just like, and you know, for the last four years, many progressive Christians were fired up and saying like, this is oppression. Um, and I guess, yeah, it's just kind of, it kind of ping pongs depending on where the power sits culturally and socially. Um, I'll link to it and we don't have to get into it, but I'll just say uh, this week, the Atlantic uh, put out a phenomenal piece called America without religion. Um, and it talks about how for the first time, American religious affiliation is plummeting for the like first time ever in America and how the interaction between politics and religion kind of fills the gap. Now people are like treating their political spheres and sides as if they were religion. And I think it, it actually intersects really well with what you're talking about today. But yeah, lots to, lots to think about. Hey, thanks, Max. Uh, other thoughts? I'm, I wanna, I'm curious what other people are thinking about this. May May said they are always capital always being persecuted. Yeah. You know, and and, and just to be clear, I I'm all for freedom of speech. <laughs> you know, I I don't want to live in a in a in a world where we are arresting. Uh, conservative pastors for preaching against, you know, as much as I disagree with, you know, uh, what they say regarding same-sex marriage, like, I don't want to live in a country where we criminalize speech that we find offensive. And I think for me, that's, that's an important dividing line. And I, what, and what I'm hearing from a lot of conservative pastors is that they're concerned that they're going to be litigated against, of course, but prosecuted for essentially just, you know, preaching, preaching the Bible. And, I, I, I would certainly say to them, I don't want to see you prosecuted for, for saying things. Uh, I don't think that's, that's, 
I think that would be a kind of oppression, frankly, that we should fight against. But that's that for me is an important dividing line. I don't know what you all think about that. Um, I think in other countries, specifically in Europe and maybe even Canada, there are certain forms of speech, hate hate speech that are uh, criminal or that you can be fined for. I, I don't know those laws, but I am um, maybe this is my Americanness coming out that I'm uh, my initial reaction is like, no, we cannot pass. <laughs> I don't want to pass laws like that. Um, but anyway, that's that's my Western liberalism. But um, do you have any thoughts about that? Anybody? Someone says there's a difference between getting sued for discrimination and being arrested for criminal for a criminal charge. Yes. Just naming that, like, I agree with you. And it's like, but there's like, I feel like some people are treating, you know, like the Equality Act, right? So I'm not allowed to fire someone because of their, you know, a protected class is suddenly like, I'm a criminal if I do it. It's like, well, you can be maybe fined and you can be sued for discrimination because that's discriminatory. But I agree. It's like, if it gets to the point of like, you are now locked up and put in prison, then we get, we get into a dicey area. But I sure. think there's a very, a very large middle ground to say, we can say something as a society is not allowed and people have the right to sue you over it. And they have a, and they have a good claim in court because, you know, the inequality act, but that's different than police coming in arresting you for discrimination. Yeah. Well, yes and no, but it's also, if you make a threat on the pulpit to murder a senator, you're going to get investigated by the FBI. If you, you know, talk about murdering black people and how, you know, white nationalism is the way to go, you're going to be on a list. Um, there's limit, you know, I'm, there's a line, I guess. If you're saying you're going to murder gay people, that's one thing. You're saying they're not allowed in church. Maybe that's another thing. I go back and forth. I go back and forth between uh, we should ban all kinds of hate speech and prosecute people who say mean things. <laughs> and we shouldn't ban any hate speech. And we should be a completely liberal society that lets anybody do whatever they want. I don't know what the right answer is. I was also going to say that persecution is a terrible or claims of persecution are a terrible barometer for whether you're doing the right thing or not. Donald Trump's, uh, according to him, has been persecuted for a very long time. And, uh, you know, let's not lump him in the same category as, you know, people who are more legitimately persecuted. And what's wrong with some persecution? I, I guess, too, <laughs> what's wrong with persecuting people that deserve to be persecuted in the sense Donald Trump, you know, criticize, if criticizing Trump is persecuting him, if, if removing him from power or something like that is persecuting him, uh, I'm all for that. You know, I'm all for some kinds of cancel culture. You know, I, yeah. I'm, I'm not totally against cancel culture. I like cancel culture a little bit. You know, I want to cancel some things and this not not in the sense of meaning, you know, that you can't read a certain book like that book shouldn't be available anywhere. Uh, but I do think that, like, I, I'm OK with some cancel culture and persecuting uh, oppression. Let, let's persecute oppressors a little bit. Uh, you know, if they want to call it that, I guess is what I'm saying. But yeah, yeah I go back and forth. Certain books I don't think should be around. You know, we don't publish manifestos of people who try to bomb buildings, but you know, Hitler's I Hate Jews autobiography is still available. Mein Kampf? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know, man. <laughs> yeah. No, you're right. These are tough questions. Uh, JP, you got your hand up. Hey, you're on mute. You're on mute. 
Um, I, you know, I had a thought about some of this stuff because I think to me, persecution is very different from a disagreement. You know, even if the disagreement is, is playing out in terms of policy and, and stuff like that. Um, persecution, from my understanding, I, I think there are persecuted Christians and usually they're being jailed and stuff like it, it's just a different, in, in, you know, globally speaking, um, if somebody doesn't like you, I don't think that's persecution. And, and if somebody gives you a hard time, like it's not that fun, but it's not. You know I mean, it's not persecution and there is still a tremendous amount of freedom here, right? Even, even within whatever, you know, kind of policy uh, guidelines. And I think for me, like, if you have the freedom to practice your faith, I, I just don't see what the issue is. And, you know, a lot of times what I find is people who have a lot tend to look for a fight. Mm. You know, and after a while, you, you sort of lose your your sense of gratitude for just being, you know, and being able to say something. And, you know, if somebody's pushing back against what you're saying, there's gratitude in that you got to say it. You know what I mean? Like you you got hurt enough that somebody came back at you like that's there's a certain amount of freedom there, you know, and. You know, I, I feel like, you know, there's the people that that finally crucified Jesus, right? But all along, he had dialogue with people who disagreed with him. Some were converted and some weren't. You know, the most beautiful dialogue to me was with Nicodemus. Yeah. I don't think that they sat down with the same views, but they weren't like fighting or anything. It was just like, all right, what's, what are you talking about, right? And this is someone who was eventually converted. If we don't have the tension, then we're not having the dialogue. And to me, the tension is not persecution. The right. anger is not persecution. You know, if somebody just throws something at you and they're being mean and throwing tomatoes, I only think that's persecution. That's like, you've been heard, they don't like it. <laughs> you know? If they have the power to jail you, okay, now you're, you're looking at persecution. But even then, I don't know, at least for us, I feel like there should be gratitude that we got to be ourselves and we got to be heard. Yeah, thanks for that perspective, JP. And John, uh, you got your hand up. Go ahead, John. Hey, everybody. Hello. Um, yeah, it was it was so. Yeah, I, I you know I grew up in that conservatives, uh, and yeah, uh, <laughs> and it was you know it actually brought me into being able to. Um, look at this stuff from a very young age. My parents taught me how to like use a lexicon when I was like eight, nine years old. And what? like immediately my brother and I were like, um, we're being taught heresy. Cause like, as we like, seriously, as kids, it was a very, I look back at it, it as a very odd experience. My brother and I having like conversations at like 10 years old, like theological conversations about how my parents were actually leading us down the wrong path. And, um, so it's a beautiful thing that like my family got to experience that it's caused a lot of confusion, but you know, right there. Okay. So something kept coming up for me. Um, there's this, uh, astronomical body called Vesta and, um, it's based off of like the energy of the Vestal Virgins. And in that time, and this just keeps coming up for me. I wasn't going to bring this up because it seems like pretty off topic, but kind of not really 
So Vestal Virgins, the whole idea was that they served this this god Vesta and it was all these virgins and they had to keep the Vestal fire lit. And in some of the temples, uh, they were chosen and some of the temples they volunteered. Um, what continues to come back for me when I study um, this particular energy in, ast- in astrology is that like, you know, they if, if they were to um, defile themselves um, and, and so some of them were allowed to have, uh, you know, relations with people and actually were in some cases demanded to have relations with like soldiers and stuff like that. But the whole idea was that if they did it without, like if they did it by breaking the rules, if it wasn't according to their temple's ideals, um, a lot of times what would happen is they would actually uh, stand up for each other. Um, all the virgins of the temple um, essentially creating this idea of like, Oh, we're not going to allow our single virgin to be uh, you know, our, our sister to be persecuted. And so they would do whatever they could to help one another. And this idea has really been prominent in my thoughts uh, watching everything go on in the political spectrum at this time and how not only um, can you look at that in the terms of how we, as you know, people who are for social justice, have been standing up to the patriarchy, but it also just seeing that same kind of uh, everybody pushing against. You know, I have family members who are Republican, and and they they sound and speak the same way that I you know, that, that like those of me and my, my peers who are social justice for the social justice. Anyway, so it's like side against side. Yeah. And I guess I just like want to bring this up because it, it really is, there's like this middle ground that we're supposed to have, you know, and I hate to bring up the whole like love the sin, but hate the sinner kind of thing. But really a lot of times I don't know, just this keeps just popping into my head as, as we're talking about, um, you know, what is the middle ground? Like what, you know, what is discrimination and what is this and that? And for me lately, especially in like my living situation, it really has been just like checking myself and being like, am I actually being the one that's discriminating against his behavior? That's discriminating against me. <laughs> like everybody can be part of the vessel virgin. Everybody can be like all for their sisters and against the patriarchy. And, um, yeah, I just, I just, yeah, I I wanted to bring that up. Oh, by the way, like that, that, that astronomical planet has been like really sitting on its own for quite a while, um, for most of the year throughout the years. So let's bring that up. I don't know. Thanks. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Thanks for those thoughts and your perspective on that, uh, John. Um, yeah, finding that middle ground. I, I don't know. Uh, I think that's certainly, uh, so something, uh, depending on the context, depending on the specifics of the circumstances we're struggling with, you mentioned your living situation. Uh, yeah, you know, finding middle ground between people with very, you know, powerful opinions can work sometimes and, and the compromise, you know, can work and be, and, and be a, a, a good thing to employ to solve problems. But sometimes, you know, we can think of many circumstances where compromising with the other side is actually, uh, you know, up to basically sign off on the oppression and 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 be a part of injustice. And so, you, but you're right in pointing out that there's circumstances where, you know, we can find common ground um, and avoid the persecution complexes. 
you know, that our side versus their side, but you know, the specifics always matter. The devil's in the details, right? Yeah. I mean, those, that, per, that person, persecution complex like that is uh, a huge part of <laughs> my family and my family's okay room. okay yeah that's that, <laughs> yeah so I, I understand your situation and some of us can certainly uh, uh, sympathize with that in our in our own families um yeah now yeah. uh, other thoughts today i just had a quick question what do you think if we asked an evangelical Christian today, what do you think they would say their definition of persecution is? Yeah, it's a good question. Because I feel like it has just been a phrase that is, you know, just anytime they feel like they're not being heard or I, I don't know, I don't even know what their definition of it is. Um, because it's what I've heard my whole life is, oh, we're so persecuted as Christians, but what does that mean? Like, I mean, I know what do you think? Well, I mean, I mean, what, what do you think, May? What do you think it might be? I mean, I agree with you that, you know, when things are happening that they don't like, but that's not the real definition of it. Yeah. Like it doesn't even come close. So yeah. I'm curious if, if I, you know, cause you know, people in my family still say that like, oh, we're being persecuted more than ever now. And I'm like, well, what is that? What does that mean? Why, why, I don't know. I, I'm just, yeah, well, let's, let's put it out to the group. I mean, I, I could, that terminology would mean now. Yeah. Um, as opposed to what JP said as being in jail for, <laughs> yeah. you know, like that is what I understand it to be. That yeah. has been my definition, but obviously that's not the definition that they use. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what do you guys, what do you all think? What would, what, what would be their definition of persecution? Um, I've, I've always thought, like when, when I think about that sort of persecution complex in evangelical Christianity, I feel like it's mostly due to the fact that they uh, essentially have kind of lost the sort of war for the greater culture, you know? So the way they live their lives are not reflected in our popular culture. It's not reflected in popular music, uh, movies, television. Uh, you know, we live in this um, overwhelmingly media saturated uh, um, era which is quite different than the way things used to be. Um, and, uh, you know, virtually all of that media doesn't uh, reflect um, the values in um, that, that they would have, you know, the sort of family values that are, you know, still, you know, that, that is, you know, there's a huge, huge swath of this country um, that still, um, hold to those traditional sort of family values and family roles. And all of those sort of, um, that kind of, um, you know, that kind of uh, traditional sort of family structure, all of that kind of stuff um, is, it's still depicted in, um, in, in our popular media, but uh, there's just a, a tremendous amount of, um, you know, sort of, I guess you maybe you call it like cultural messaging in a way, you know, that is totally antithetical to uh, to the way they live their life, you know. So in a sense, it's like, uh, you know, I personally don't think that's persecution. <laughs> right. You know, I would not describe that as persecution. You know, I would describe that as, you know, the inevitable drift of a culture 
uh, away from one thing into another. Now they are, but they, I, I, I do think that they perceive that as, as persecution. And I think that that's like the main thing that they feel like quote persecuted by, you know, is that, is yeah. that sense of cultural drift. And, and thank you for bringing that up. And Abe, I think that's rooted in their, and this, this was ingrained in, in me as a, as a kid growing up and all that, that, that there's a sense of loss there because we were told that this is a Christian nation, that God has given us this nation, that, that, that God has set aside this nation for his own purposes, and we are to be a beacon of his, of his righteousness in the world. And, if we, and, and, and the secular progressives are, are putting a stop to that or interfering with that, and, and therefore we're persecuted because we're having this country taken away from us. We're losing the culture war, as you said. But that comes from a sense of entitlement and a sense of dominion theology that God gave us this land and our ancestors, our Christian European ancestors, this, this land for his divine purposes. And we are losing that to Satan and the secular progressives. I mean, that's where all that's rooted in, right? Can I just reflect on what Abe said really quick about media? The thing that I always thought was hilarious about this, even growing up, is that Christian films and Christian music is awful. Like they're really, really bad. And I mean, I I completely understand, you know, the strive of wanting to produce movies and, you know, do all of this with their narrative in mind. I completely understand that. But if it's just bad, it's just bad. And I think that if they wanted to be, I don't know, more mainstream, I think they could. I think yeah. that I think that they actually could reach people if they wanted to. Um, but because they have this big like, I'm right and you're wrong, this is the way that it has to be, and you can't think any different than us, there is no middle ground there. So I don't I I completely agree with Abe. I don't think that's persecution at all. It's completely a choice. It is a choice for them to make movies for their enjoyment and their narrative. Yeah, and the reason why it's bad, I think, May, is because it's propaganda. That, that, that's what of makes course. it bad art. It's bad art because, frankly, it's propaganda. Yep. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to jump in here. Something that's been coming up for me a lot um, is just in my personal so one of the things i've been experiencing um is what i have been labeling myself like is xenophobic behavior by somebody towards me um constantly uh like they've they've been getting angry and screaming at me uh and using hurtful words in regards to me being a christian and i'm a very (laughs) very like to me i'm just like oh gosh i'm like one of the most non-christian christians um but it, what's been coming up for me is just really thinking about how very rarely did Christ ever stand up for himself. I mean, especially in the, at the end of his life, like there he is like being like led on to death and he did not stop it. He just stood by what he believed, but allowed himself to be led to like a lamb to slaughter. And I, I've just been questioning a lot for myself. You know, I do know that it says like that I don't need to necessarily like defend God can defend himself, you know? And, but then like, I also like, I'm like balancing back over to the whole, like, don't pick up an offense for another, but like also God saying like, dude, you know, Jesus saying like do justice for others. 
and just like thinking about what the you know putting putting myself then like you said may like like what what do they consider persecute they <laughs> what do conservative like evangelical people like what do they consider persecution you know i i just kind of like have been putting myself in that same position and asking like do i really need to feel persecuted and it's really interesting that like in the liturgy that bob chose about there was the the phrase wounded healer um which has a huge astrological like meaning to me but um the idea of like as a wounded healer it's like it's like i i just live with my wounds and i use that experience to help people it just doesn't seem that the evangelical church works in that way it doesn't seem like they're allowing themselves to be christ-like and just only actually defending god and the helpless they tend to like just kind of bring that persecution and just like think about the per persecution for themselves so i guess i'm just like coming back to this it's it's just what's the difference between like persecution and just like being like self-preserving that's a great question it's a great way to put it yeah good stuff yeah good stuff uh, other thoughts today We might have been a small crowd, but we had a good, robust discussion. Uh, always appreciate it, everybody. Um, so with that, why don't we uh, formally conclude our service here today? Uh, thanks for being here. If you want to hang out and chat, please do so. But otherwise, uh, we'll dismiss. And we'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.